Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast where we discuss the events and the people of the North American fur trade from the 1600s roughly to 1840. In the previous episode, we covered four of the toughest women in the fur trade. Today, we're going to talk about four of the toughest men. And this proved to be quite a challenge. For the women, it was relatively easy because only a handful of women were ever written about. And that really limited my choices. But for the men, there were thousands involved in the fur trade in some capacity. Of those, several hundred were written about. And of those, almost a hundred were written about in great detail. So the additional criteria that I added to determine the four toughest men was that they had to survive some catastrophic event. It might seem obvious to us today, but there was no such thing as a sissy mountain man. These guys were living and working in an environment where hostile natives and competing trappers, vicious animals, and brutal weather were always trying to kill you. Many a buckskinner died in the wilderness never to be heard from again. And many packed in his traps and headed back from whence he came because he just wasn't cut out for it. Besides the normal, everyday trials of survival, some of these men experienced horrific injuries that would make today's trauma team's head swim. They were literally sewn back together with cat gut in unhygienic, unsterile conditions with no antibiotics and not taking into account blood loss. That in itself could lead to infection and death, and yet somehow they survived. Those are the men we're going to talk about today. The first man actually has an episode dedicated to him already, so we'll just give you the bulletin points for him. His name was Jedediah Smith, and within a year of being hired by William Henry Ashley of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, Jed was promoted to captain, and then he later became a co-owner of that same fur company. In 1823, at the age of 24 years old, Jed was leading his company into the southern Black Hills near present-day South Dakota, and the party was looking for the local Crow tribe to trade with. Jed was scouting several hundred yards ahead of his men when a huge grizzly bear sprang out of the thicket and tackled him to the ground. With one massive paw on his chest, pinning the man down, the bear bit down into Jed's body, miraculously catching his leather ball pouch and his hunting knife in the bite. As the grizzly clamped his jaws closed, the pouch and the knife pressed deep into either side of Jed's torso, fracturing several ribs. Jed tried to punch and kick the bear away as sharp claws dug into the flesh of his side. Gasping for air, with several broken ribs and a big grizzly bear standing on his chest, Jed fought with all he had. Now, the human body's fight-or-flight defense response is incredible. The heart rate increases, forcing more oxygen and energy to the critical organs, like the heart, while constricting blood flow to those less critical organs, like the stomach. The bronchi of the lungs dilate, increasing your breath rate, thereby increasing the oxygen levels in your blood. Your skin becomes pale as the blood flow is diverted away into the critical organs. Even your pupils dilate to allow in more light so that you can perceive and judge your surroundings better. 
but arguably the most critical reaction is the decreased sensitivity to pain. Adrenaline pumps wildly through your bloodstream, muting the pain response in the nervous system. This allows you to either fight off your attacker or escape, unhampered by the pain those injuries are causing. And this is why a person can survive a traumatic situation only to later realize that they were actually seriously injured. Something else happens in our brains in dangerous situations. Time seems to slow, partially because of the increase of neural pulses that gives you a sharper reaction, and partially because we're paying closer attention to it. So Jed's fight for his life would have been like a Hollywood movie where time slows down, his heart rate speeds up, the sound of blood pulses in his ears, the things that his eyes detect are vivid and super bright as light floods into his dilated pupils. Well, the bear reared up and slams down into the man again, this time biting down on the top of Jed Smith's scalp. Jed would have heard the muted sound of the massive teeth slicing into his flesh, scraping across the bones of his skull. The bear clamped down on the scalp and jerked it away from Jed's head. There would have been a strong tug and a sucking sound as the scalp was freed from its mooring. He would have felt the warm blood running down his face as he tried desperately to cover his head with his arms. The bear grabbed him once more by the torso, squeezing broken ribs into his battered body. It picked him up from the ground and it shook him like a rag doll before hurling him aside to land on the ground in a broken heap. The entire incident would have taken only minutes to play out, but to Jed, it would have felt like an eternity. As the bear took its leave, Jed lay there, gasping and praying. He recited the Psalms to try to collect himself and very likely to prepare himself to meet his maker. His crew ran up to find their leader piled up in a shredded heap of bloody mangled flesh. They helped him up only to realize that the scalp had been torn away so severely that it dangled over the front of his face with one ear completely detached. But Jed kept it together, instructing his men on how to bind his ribs and repair his damaged side. He calmly talked fellow mountain man Jim Kleiman through the process of sewing his head back together. And then, I would imagine he collapsed from the exhaustion that follows a traumatic event like that. See, as the body returns to normal after a serious adrenaline rush, blood begins to return to the non-critical organs, so your stomach starts to lurch and roll. Some people become violently ill. Your muscles ache and throb, your head pounds, your knees shake, and your heartbeat struggles to regulate itself. Blood pressure drops and breathing becomes shallow and anxious, and you suddenly find yourself sleepy and feeling completely drained. And then, as that adrenaline drains from your body, the pain hits. In Jed's case, he would have been feeling the chest pain of broken ribs, like a knife twisting in his gut with every breath. He would have had this blinding pain in his face and his head where the makeshift stitches held his wound closed. His men did their best to make him comfortable, and for two weeks, Jed lay in camp resting. And on the 15th day, Jedediah Smith got up 
and led his men into the Wind River Valley towards their winter camp with the Crow Indians. That is one tough individual. Our next mountain man also has a dedicated episode, so I invite you to check that out. Thomas Fitzpatrick was also a captain with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company alongside Jed Smith. And this man's experiences are wonderfully entertaining and very much worth reading about. I hope you'll check out my site at furzenfrontiers.com to hear that story. But I will summarize his toughness here. On more than one occasion, Thomas Fitzpatrick had frightening run-ins with various hostile tribes. One of those many run-ins was with a band of hostile natives, and it found him standing squished into the crevice between these two monolith rocks for several days before he escaped his pursuers and he slipped off into the night. He was headed back to the rendezvous at Pierre's Hole. A wolf pack treed him for several more days on his journey back. His shoes fell apart, and he had to wrap his feet with whatever leather he had on him just to get back. It took weeks for him to finally drag himself into camp, starving and suffering exposure. He finally made it to the rendezvous, and there's this great celebration. But the event was so traumatic that his dark hair had turned completely gray by the time he collapsed at the gate. Another event found him and two others capsizing their bullboats on a trek to Fort Atkinson, followed by a two-week-long fight for survival with no supplies and no gear. But probably the most intense event that happened to him was when he was on a trek with Jim Bridger. They were out scouting. The two men had briefly separated, and Fitzpatrick soon found himself being pursued by hostile Blackfeet. He took off like a shot, driving his horse relentlessly. After a long, hard chase, Thomas was finally putting some distance between him and the hostile natives. As he neared a stream, his horse lunged headlong over the embankment, unseating Fitzpatrick and throwing the man down hard on the rocks below. The horse now lay crumpled with a broken neck, dead in the stream. Thomas jumped up, determined to make a stand. As he slid the buckskin cover off his rifle, the weapon accidentally discharged, and it blew half of his left hand and two of his fingers completely off. With the blood flowing freely down his arm into his buckskin shirt, he reloaded the rifle and took aim. He fired the rifle at the closest pursuer, shooting clean through the man and striking a second man on a different horse behind him. The pursuers decided that this crazy guy was not worth it, and they turned and fled. Thomas then stitched his own hand closed, bandaged it up as best as he could, and he walked several miles back to where he was supposed to meet Jim Bridger. But he would forever be known as Broken Hand. Now, our third rugged mountain hero is a man named John Coulter. John was born in the colony of Virginia in 1774. By the age of 16, he had moved to Maysville, Kentucky, and he was serving as a ranger under the legendary mountain man, Simon Kenton. It was here that he learned all the skills that trappers and explorers needed to survive. And he had become so proficient that Meriwether Lewis, while he was waiting in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania for supplies for his famous cross-country expedition, hired this kid to be a hunter. 
Coulter signed on for $5 a month, and he joined the crew at a rank of private. And that's where his problems began. John Coulter might have had some seriously exceptional woodsman skills, but he had a bit of an attitude when it came to following orders. In fact, he was really bad at it. Most of the times, he was just playing around and rowdy and rebellious, and a few sharp words from Meriwether Lewis brought him back into line. But when Lewis and Clark set up the winter camp north of St. Louis in 1803, and they instructed the entire company to stay put, John Coulter and a few of his buddies snuck out of camp to go hit the whiskey shop in town. When Meriwether Lewis found out, he scolded him and he confined him to quarters for ten days under the supervision of one Sergeant John Ordway, who took policing the men very seriously. Ordway gave the orders, Coulter refused to obey them, and an argument broke out. It came down to blows, and Coulter threatened to shoot the sergeant. So John Coulter was court-martialed, and he was thrown in the brig. And it's here that he had an epiphany. He groveled, and he promised to reform himself. And they gave him another chance. In fact, he did just that, becoming one of the most straight-laced, devoted employees that Lewis and Clark had ever had. In fact, he redeemed himself, and he regained the trust of Lewis and Clark so solidly that they often sent him out scouting alone. He was a remarkable hunter and a gifted scout, often finding safe passage through areas that other scouts wouldn't even dare consider. In 1806, after three years of honing his skills with Lewis and Clark, he was released from his military contract with an honorable discharge, and he became the guide for two frontiersmen named Dixon and Hancock in the upper Missouri River Basin. By all accounts, Dixon was kind of a jerk. After a falling out with Dixon, Coulter decided he had had enough. He headed back to St. Louis with the intention of cashing in his chips. And somewhere near the mouth of the Platte River, he met up with Manuel Lisa, owner of the Missouri Fur Company. Lisa convinced him to join them in the building of Fort Raymond, near the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Bighorn Rivers. So over the winter, John Coulter explored what would become Yellowstone National Park. Not only did he travel more than 500 miles around the area alone, but he did it in the dead of winter when temperatures commonly reach minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And what he saw blew his mind. The geysers and the sulfur springs reminded him of the landscapes of Hades. When he got back to Fort Raymond in April of 1808, he excitedly told his companions what he witnessed, and everyone made fun of him. They mockingly called the Yellowstone region Coulter's Hell. But John didn't care. He knew what he had seen. And it would be quite some time before that region would be thoroughly explored. And when it was, it was found out that Coulter's descriptions were spot on. Well, later that year, in 1808, Coulter teamed up with a trader named John Potts to explore trade routes with the local Crow and Flathead Indians. The two men were leading a group of 800 or so Crows and Flatheads back to Fort Raymond to trade when the group was attacked by some 1,500 or so Blackfeet. The Crow and the Flatheads managed to beat back their attackers, 
but Coulter got shot in the leg, so he spent the rest of the year at Fort Raymond recuperating. But when Potts asked Coulter to head back into the wilderness with him, Coulter couldn't refuse. So the following spring, the two men set out, each in a small canoe laden down with supplies, and they set off down the Jefferson River in Montana. Several days into their journey, the two men encountered several hundred Blackfeet on the shore. The natives demanded the men beach their canoes. Coulter agreed, but Potts refused. As Coulter stepped from his canoe, he was relieved of his possessions and ordered to strip down naked. Potts was again instructed to come to shore, but again the man refused. One of the Blackfeet shot a rifle at Potts as a warning, and it winged the man. Potts drew up his rifle, and he unloaded the barrel into the Blackfoot's chest. Before the warrior's body even hit the ground, an instant hellfire of arrows and bullets rained down on Potts. In Coulter's own words, the man was indistinguishable from the damage caused by the Blackfeet. The canoe was retrieved, and Potts's body was dragged to shore, where they promptly hacked it to pieces. Keep in mind that a very naked, very scared John Coulter is watching all of this transpire, and he's well aware that he's in big trouble. So when he's brought bound and naked before a council of elders, he knows his goose is cooked. John also knew enough of the Blackfoot language to understand that the council had decided to make a sport out of his execution. One of the warriors asked Coulter if he could run. Coulter stood there barefoot and naked, looking out across the plains covered in prickly pear cactus and sticker bushes, and basically said, me? Not at all. I'm a horrible runner. I paraphrase, but you get the idea. So the chief decided to give Coulter a few hundred yards head start to make it more of a challenge for his warriors. The chief pointed in the direction of Jefferson City, Missouri, some six miles away, and shoved Coulter into motion. For the first few hundred yards, Coulter faltered and stumbled and winced every time his foot struck a sharp rock or a cactus. I envisioned that he clowned it up a bit to make it look good. He could hear the Blackfoot warriors laughing and insulting him, taunting him to run faster. Well, at the signal from the chief, the warriors let out a war whoop, and they started off at this easy lope after their really slow prey. Coulter needed no further encouragement than that sound. The naked man took off running like the hounds of hell nipped at his heels. He ignored the cactus thorns embedding into his bare feet with every step. He ignored the shredding his ankles and calves were taking from the pricker bushes. The sharp rocks were slicing his feet open, and he ignored it as he desperately tried to put as much distance between himself and his pursuers as he could. He never slowed. After nearly three miles, he finally worked up the nerve to look back. That's when he realized that he had outrun every warrior except for one spear-wielding man who was showing serious signs of tiring. He had run so fast and so hard that he had given himself a nosebleed, which was still cascading a flow of blood down the front of him. But still, he ran on at full throttle. When he was within a mile of the Madison River, in familiar territory, he finally began to slow. He paced himself 
trying to breathe through the blood that was flowing freely from his nose. When he looked back again, the pursuer had closed the distance. It was now only twenty or so yards behind him. But the man was obviously winded and tiring. And it was at that point that Coulter made his move. As the warrior arched his arm backwards to throw the spear, Coulter swung to face the attacker, and his arms flailing, shrieking the fiercest scream his exhausted, aching body could muster. Whether it was the fatigue, the surprise, or the sight of a blood-covered crazy man spinning around on him, we'll never know. The now-off-balanced attacker stumbled, and Coulter grabbed at the spear, which bounced off the hard ground and broke into two splintered pieces. John Coulter came up with the short pointed end in his hand as the warrior crashed onto his back on the ground. As the Blackfoot lay floundering, Coulter whipped the spear around and with all of the desperate force he could muster, he drove it into the warrior's chest. There was so much force behind it, he embedded the spear point deep into the earth, pinning the warrior fast. Coulter jerked the fallen warrior's blanket out of his belt, and he took off towards the river. When he reached the river's bank, he plunged headlong into the cold water and began swimming towards an island, midstream and slightly downriver. A large raft of driftwood had built up on the edge of this island, and Coulter made a beeline for it. After several minutes, he had wormed his way into the middle of the tangle, and he fell silent as the Blackfeet warriors caught up to him. The warriors searched up and down on both shores and more than once walked the island right past where he was hiding. Coulter remained motionless with only his nose and his eyes peeking out of the water. He was silently praying they wouldn't set the driftwood pile alight. As the sunlight faded away, so did the warriors' interest. Coulter waited hours longer for complete darkness before silently slipping out of his driftwood sanctuary and floating downstream. After he was certain he had put a great distance between himself and the island, he swam to shore, and he wrapped a waterlogged blanket around his naked body. The next leg of his journey would take him towards Manuel Lisa's fort on the Bighorn River. That journey would take 11 days and more than 250 miles through hostile territory with nothing but a tattered blanket for protection. No food, no weapons, no shelter, just the blanket. By the time he limped into Fort Lisa, he was starving, sunburnt, caked in mud and blood, with feet, ankles, and calves shredded to a bloody pulp. Coulter survived, though, and a year later, he would again find himself partnered with two trappers working near the Three Forks, Missouri. One night, while Coulter was out hunting, he returned to find his two companions had been killed by Blackfeet. And he had had enough. He hung up his traps, and he settled down in New Haven, Missouri, with a pretty girl named Sally to keep him warm at night. He wasn't stationary long, though, because when the War of 1812 broke out and the U.S. declared war on Britain... He signed up with Nathan Boone's rangers and he headed right back into the fray. When he died and what he died of remains a subject of great debate. One source says he fell ill in the spring of 1812 and he died of jaundice on the 7th of May. Another says he died of jaundice in November of 1813. 
Either way, his remains were returned to his wife, who is said to have buried him on a bluff overlooking the Missouri River that he loved so much. And this brings us to the last and toughest mountain man of all, in my opinion. This is a man that almost every modern-day buckskinner and Leonardo DiCaprio fangirl knows the story of. His name is Hugh Glass, and he was most recently portrayed by DiCaprio in the 2015 movie The Revenant. And while the Hollywood version of the story is awesome in terms of showing how the fur trappers and traders lived, it's been embellished for the viewer's benefit. But the craziest part about the Hugh Glass movie is that the parts that Hollywood did not cover are more exciting than the parts they made up. So here's the real story. Hugh Glass was born sometime around 1783 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to immigrant parents. By the age of 15, he was living on the frontier near Pittsburgh, and he was apprenticing to a gunmaker named Henry Wolfe. While Wolfe was an exceptional gunsmith, he was reportedly a real jerk. There are actually a number of ads the man took out offering rewards for the return of his runaway apprentices. So that tells you what kind of boss he was that his apprentices kept running away. And a few years later, in 1795, a reward ad shows up. The glass himself disappeared into the obscurity of the frontier with no forwarding address. The rest of his childhood and youth is unknown because he doesn't show up again until 1816 in Texas. When he shows up again, he's either on a ship or he's commanding a ship in 1816 off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. The ship was captured by French pirates under the command of the famous scallywag Jean Lafitte. And he's gang-pressed into service on this pirate ship, which is very common in this day. And for the next two years, he's an unwilling captive pirate harassing ships in the Gulf. In 1818, he and another man are supposed to be hauled before Lafitte on charges of being pretty lousy pirates. Rightly figuring his future is going to be a short one, Glass and the companion reportedly escaped by swimming to shore, and they landed somewhere near present-day Galveston, Texas. The two men then start their long journey north, somehow avoiding capture from not one, but two cannibalistic native tribes, the Karankawa and the Tonkawa. A thousand miles of evasion later, they're captured by a band of Pawnee. When the two men are later confronted by the chief of the Pawnee, the friend gets belligerent and he threatens the old Indian. And he's promptly tortured to death. Well, he wasn't stupid. He knows what his fate will be if he repeats that mistake. So he executed his most humble bow and he presents the chief with a gift of a vial of cinnabar. Cinnabar is a bright red form of mercury sulfide ore that some old mountain men called vermilion. Well, the chief is duly impressed with his presence and Hugh's respectful demeanor, so Hugh is adopted into the Pawnee tribe. He's given a gift of a new outfit of buckskins, and it's said a 54 caliber hawk and rifle. I'd like to point something out here. If you look at the NRA's website, it goes into great detail about this rifle, and it claims that it was a 53 caliber Anstad Pennsylvania long rifle with an octagonal barrel produced in Kutztown. So 
it's hard to tell which source is more accurate. And since I know very little about guns, I leave that to you to research. What is certain, though, is that a really good rifle would have cost 40 to $50. And to put that into perspective, a very well-bred horse would have cost about 10 which is kind of equivalent to you buying a car or a house today. That's a whole lot of money. So a man's rifle was the most important thing in his life. Not only was it his moneymaker, but it was also his self-defense against an extremely hostile environment that was always trying to kill you. Now, Hugh Glass lived with the Pawnee as a full member of the tribe for three years, until 1821, when he accompanied a delegation to St. Louis, they were going to meet with the representatives of the U.S. government. While in St. Louis, he saw an ad in the Missouri Gazette recruiting for Ashley's 100. He was intrigued, and he talked to William Henry Ashley about the hunter's job, but he decided it wasn't his cup of tea. So he walked away, returning instead to his Pawnee village. Now, while he's living with the Pawnee, he would have been instructed on all the ways of the Pawnee, including medicinal plants, what's poisonous and what's not, what's venomous and what's not, he would have learned to hunt and fish the pony way. Two years went by, and he was out trapping on the Missouri River when he came across Ashley's men working. Ashley made him another offer, and this time he couldn't refuse. He finally signed up. Barely a month later, in the spring of 1823, the company came under attack from the Arakara Indians, which, in the movie, they refer to them as Rees. That's the big fight scene in the movie where the men are scrambling to get to the boats. And during that attack, Hugh Glass was shot. Despite the injury, Glass led the survivors downstream to wait for help. While he and his men were hunkered down, Hugh was said to have written letters to the parents of the fallen comrades who had died in that attack. In fact, one of those letters is in the possession of the South Dakota State Historical Society. So, you can read it online. After William Henry Ashley rescued his company's men and exacted his revenge against the Arakara, the men regrouped at Fort Kiowa near present-day Chamberlain, South Dakota. Ashley had just received word from Captains Jed Smith and Thomas Fitzpatrick that they had found the best trapping grounds ever so the company was preparing for their expedition into the Virgin Rocky Mountains. With some of the men of that company, led by Ashley's partner, Andrew Henry, Glass and several others were trapping near the forks of Grand River, near what is now Shade Hill Reservoir in Perkins County, South Dakota. Glass was in the advance, scouting possible trapping spaces and apparently snacking on wild berries in the brush despite Henry's warning to stick to the trails. When he stepped deeper into the brush to retrieve another handful of berries, he stumbled into a mother grizzly and her two cubs. Well, the mama bear charged at Hugh without warning. She slashed down his body with her giant claws, knocking him to the ground, and bit down into the flesh of his neck and shoulder. She hoisted him off the ground and shook him violently, separating the flesh from the bone. He managed to free the clasp on his knife and was repeatedly sinking it into her thick hide, slamming it home with everything he had. The sow seemed unfazed as she thrashed him around, 
She slammed him onto the ground, and she bounced up and down on his body, grinding him into the earth with every slam of her full two hundred or so pounds. She grabbed at his torso, catching his back and hip in her mouth, and she jerked the meat from his body. As she reared up for another strike, the men of the company came running, and they shot the bear dead. The big sow collapses down onto Glass's broken body. Well, the men rolled the bear away and surveyed the wreckage of the man beneath. One leg was clearly suffering a compound fracture. Ribs were exposed where the muscle had been pulled from his back. Part of one detached glute lay in the dirt next to his body. The side of his neck was torn wide open, showing a large gash in his windpipe. Each exhaled breath forced the air from his lungs and out the side of his neck. One shredded shoulder showed exposed bone as the torn skin dangled, sliced into ragged ribbons from giant claws. The other shoulder suffered a deep bite and was bleeding profusely. It must have been a gruesome sight. It's really no wonder that the entire company figured he wouldn't make it. Even the experienced Andrew Henry held no hope that this man was going to pull through this. The company men patched him back together as best they could, without having an experienced medical officer on hand. They fashioned a stretcher, and they strapped him to it with his Hawkins rifle strapped across his chest. In the movie, Glass was injured during the winter. But in actuality, it was June when the bear attack happened. So instead of biting cold and snow like the movie, the men would have been facing sunburn and dehydration and swarms of biting flies and mosquitoes. But, like the movie does depict, hauling a half-dead 200-pound man up a cliff face on an awkward stretcher is severely slow-going progress. With each jolt and bump of the litter, Glass would lose consciousness. When he was coherent, he was either in excruciating pain or exhibiting signs of shock. Eventually, after two days of trying to drag him along, the good of the many outweighed the needs of the one, and Andrew Henry stopped the procession. He asked for two volunteers to stay with Glass until he finally succumbed to his wounds and then give him a proper burial, and nobody stepped up. So Henry then offered to pay a bonus to whoever would volunteer, and two men stepped forward. One was a veteran trapper named John S. Fitzgerald, and the other was a young recruit named in the records as Bridges, though most people today believe that this boy was a very young, inexperienced Jim Bridger. Fitzgerald and Bridges began to dig this dying man's grave as the rest of the company moves on. Glasses drifting in and out of consciousness while these two men are set to their solemn task. And while they work, Fitzgerald's trying to convince this inexperienced kid that there's no sense in staying. Glass was going to die either way. Best just dump his mangled body into the hole and catch up with the others. For a full day and night, the two men sat next to a half-conscious Hugh Glass, debating what to do. Bridges didn't feel it was right to leave saying they couldn't abandon another man that way, especially when their commander had ordered them to stay. Fitzgerald didn't see the need to risk their own lives and threaten to abandon Bridges where he sat. 
Fitzgerald told the lad he'd have to get back on his own, and the air carrier just around the corner waiting for him. After a few sleepless nights, a threat like that spooked Bridges enough to agree. In the morning, Glass regained consciousness to find that the men had placed him unceremoniously in a hastily dug grave and shoveled the dirt in on top of him, and they had disappeared into the night. What's worse, they had taken his gear, his knife, and his beloved rifle. The only item he was left with was the still bloody hide of the bear. The two men had used it as his burial shroud. I want you to stop for a second and think about that. This man was brutally mauled just days ago. He's broken and bloody, and he's been dragged, who knows how far, in what direction, on a stretcher for days. Not only is he suffering terrible physical trauma, he has no idea where he is or in which direction his men went. When he finally had gathered the strength to sit up and take stock of his injuries, he realized how desperate his situation was. In between bouts of unconsciousness, he reset and splinted his fractured leg, assessed his festering wounds, and he applied maggots to his own injuries to clear out the necrotic meat and to prevent gangrene. At first, he was passed out cold more than he was conscious, but as the days wore on, he spent longer and longer periods awake and alert. For the first week, he laid by a stream, drinking the cool water and living on the meat of a rattlesnake that he had killed with a rock. The knowledge he had obtained while living with the Pawnee was about to pay off, big time. As his strength returned, anger set in. He began to drag himself around in an army crawl, gathering roots and berries to build up his energy. And slowly, steadily, he grew stronger. He knew the tracks of his companions were fading with each day, so he began to army crawl his way after them. This was, of course, punctuated with periods of being passed out cold. From dragging himself on his elbows, he graduated to half-crawling, dragging his broken leg behind him. When he was able to hobble without passing out, he fashioned a cane from a piece of driftwood, and he began to stagger. For hundreds of miles, he went on like this. When he reached the shore of the Cheyenne River, just south of Howe, South Dakota, he built a raft of driftwood and scavenged sticks, and he floated himself across the swift water. Another 150 miles later, Glass dragged his battered body into Fort Kiowa, much to everyone's amazement. It took him a full six weeks to make it there. And six weeks is a very long time to think about how you got shafted and plotting your revenge. So by the time he stumbles into Fort Kiowa, he has developed a very serious bloodlust for these two men who left him to die in the wilderness and who took his stuff. He wanted revenge, but more than anything, he wanted that rifle back. Nothing else mattered. Unfortunately for Hugh Glass, only a few men were remaining at Fort Kiowa because the company had moved on weeks earlier, and they were now at Fort Henry on the Yellowstone River, 500 miles away. And 500 miles later, he dragged himself into Fort Henry to find it empty 
with a note stuck on the door. The company had moved some 200 miles up to their camp on the Bighorn River in Montana. Let me do that math for you. If you add up all of the real estate from the point where he was left to die to where he's finally met up with the company, Hugh Glass traveled more than 1,100 miles to get his rifle back and kill those two mangy dogs who left him to die. And nearly half of that 1,100 miles was done on his belly or his knees. The young recruit Bridges was the first man Glass found. And I can only imagine what went through that kid's head seeing this grizzled, angry mountain man's ghost back from the dead. Glass had been semi-conscious during Bridges and Fitzgerald's argument about abandoning him. He heard Bridges insist that they should stay. So after putting the fear of God into the lad, Glass decided to write off Bridges' betrayal as he's a young kid, he's inexperienced, and he's under the influence of this veteran trapper who should have known better. Rather than kill Bridges, he gave the boy a stern lecture on how he should have handled it and set him on the straight and narrow. And for many of those who believe that this lad was the famous Jim Bridger, it's likely that this lecture was what shaped him into becoming the incredible man that he was. Forgiving Bridges didn't lessen Hugh Glass's hatred for Fitzgerald. And it was pretty much all Andrew Henry could do to keep Glass from hunting the man down to kill him. Thankfully, Fitzgerald had left the company not that long ago, and he was somewhere safe across country, safe from Hugh Glass and his rage. Glass spent the rest of the winter recovering from his harrowing experience. In 1824, after he was fully recovered, Andrew Henry reassigned Hugh Glass to lead a supply run to Fort Atkinson some 1,200 miles away. It was here that Glass discovered Fitzgerald had joined the regular army and was stationed at Fort Atkinson. Imagine his elation. But Hugh now had a problem. His bloodlust had not cooled at all, and he now had the opportunity not only to get his rifle back, but to beat the snot out of that thief and exact his revenge. However, that thief was now property of the U.S. military, which meant touching him, let alone killing him, was a federal offense. He couldn't take Fitzgerald's life without forfeiting his own. The Commandant forced Fitzgerald to return Hugh's knife and rifle, and Hugh was paid several hundred dollars in restitution. But that's the only satisfaction Glass was going to get. Hugh did, however, make it perfectly clear to Fitzgerald that the moment he was no longer in the military, he was a dead man, and Glass promised that he would be there waiting. And I would imagine Fitzgerald did not doubt Hugh's sincerity. 600 miles after leaving Fort Atkinson, Hugh and four others were transporting the supplies back to where Henry waited for them. Their small party came under attack by a band of hostile Arakara, who relieved them of those supplies and their personal weapons, including the rifle he had just gotten back. During the attack, two men were killed outright, and the remaining three scattered. Hugh tried to connect with these two other survivors, but despite days of searching, he couldn't find them. Once again, he's alone in the wilderness, and he made his way back to the Bighorn River camp, 500 miles away 
with only his knife and a piece of flint. That's all he had on him. For the next nine years, Glass continued to work the mountains from Taos, New Mexico to the Columbia River in Oregon as a free trapper, independent from the companies, often disappearing into the wilderness alone and coming back out again laden down with furs. Occasionally, he would team up with other trappers from the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. It was during the late winter of 1833 when he and two other trappers were walking along the frozen Yellowstone River near present-day Bighorn, Montana. They had just resupplied at Fort Cass. They were heading back into the wilderness. The three men were attacked, and all three were killed by a band of hostile Arakara. Fellow mountain men later found their scalped remains and buried them in unmarked graves. Much like our episode on the famous women of the fur trade, these men all exhibit the same traits. Stubborn determination, immense amounts of skill and knowledge, and no shortage of dumb luck. But unlike the women, these four men also suffered horrific damage to their bodies, and not only survived the trauma, but voluntarily went back into the fray once they had recovered. That right there is why these four great men are my pick for the toughest mountain men of all times. Thank you again for joining me for this week's episode. I encourage you to check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for more on this and other topics of the North American fur trade. Also, please check out the page labeled resources for an extremely long list of document repositories and other cool links to further your own deep dive into this rich history. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry.